0: Just a quick reminder that you can catch me live streaming this Thursday at eight seven central on Get Vocal. I'll leave a link in the show notes, or you can just watch it on Facebook on the Crime Lines Facebook page. Like the page and turn on notifications so you'll be alerted to when I go live. The live streams are of course completely free. If you want the audio only version where I'm cutting out all the chit chat and you're just hearing the case presentation. I do offer that on Patreon as a bonus there. You can check that out at patreon.com slash crimelines. But if you do want the live stream in its entirety and you can't make it, they always stay up on both Get Vocal and on Facebook forever and ever and ever, so you can just catch it then. This week, I am discussing the disappearance of William and Margaret Patterson, so definitely check it out. Now, on with the episode. After CCTV footage of Lars Matank hit the internet, he was dubbed the most famous missing person on YouTube. But the international publicity hasn't answered the question his friends and family have been asking since 2014. Where is Lars? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines, welcome back. If you've listened before, most of you probably have. This week, we are back in Europe for a Bulgarian-slash-German case. Bulgaria is north of Greece and Turkey, for those who are geographically challenged, and we are going to talk a little bit more about the coast of that country, which those of you who are not geographically challenged know the eastern coast is the Black Sea. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the podcast Riddle Me That you will hear her promo at the end of the podcast. She is a fairly new show starting in June or July, but she pumps out content, so there's probably like 40 episodes already. Jules, the host, has been a huge support to Crimelines on social media. She's always recommending the show, so I am so happy to be able to return the favor a little bit and play her promo so you guys can have a new podcast to binge. I also want to give a huge thank you and a huge shout out to Nicole for her help with this case. The vast majority of the sources used are in German since Lars Matank was from Germany and Nicole read, extracted, and translated a ton of information for me. Believe it or not, Google Translate does not get all of the credit this week. The credit goes to Nicole, so thank you very much. Because Nicole could tap into videos and other sources that are not Google Translatable, I may actually have some information you haven't heard before, even though this case has been covered on other English language podcasts and YouTube-based crime shows. You all know that I don't cover well-known cases unless I feel like I have something I can bring to the table, something a little new or different to add to the conversation. And thanks to Nicole's translation help, I think we do here. So let's jump in. This case starts in 2014 when 28-year-old Lars Matank decided to go on a guy's trip to Varna which is the third largest city in Bulgaria, and it is the largest one on the Black Sea coast. It is a popular destination for vacationers who like to party, particularly the area Lars was going, which is in a town that's within Varna, and it is called Golden Sands. The town is pretty much a beach and hotels and resorts the area attracts a lot of younger people. There are a number of all-inclusive resorts in the area, and the accommodations tend to be cheaper than in similar beach destinations, making it a big draw for the younger people who might not have as much money saved up for a big international beach holiday. The 18 to 30-year-old crowd is well-represented at Golden Sands. Varna is also considered a relatively safe place to go, particularly when you are staying at one of these all-inclusive resorts that are pretty much right on the beach. You have little reason to even leave that area. Now, you are going to see the usual crimes against tourists, things like money-changing scams and petty theft. But tourists don't generally have to worry about being violently attacked while there. Bulgaria on the whole is fairly safe. The murder rate is less than half that of the U.S. Most of the crime in Bulgaria is corruption and organized crime related. And it's not going to be a major concern for the average 20-something who is heading to a resort to party on the beach. Lars had never been on a trip like this before, but his mother, Sandra, could see why he wanted to go. He was a hard worker. He grew up an only child in northern Germany and went to a trade school to become a precision mechanic. He got a job at a coal power plant, and not only did he do good work there, but he truly enjoyed the job. On his days off, he would drive the roughly two hours back home to help Sandra out because in 2012, his father had a stroke and Lars wanted to help with his care whenever he could. So between working a lot and traveling home to help with his father, it made sense that he would want to go on a nice fun trip with his friends. But even still, this was not Lars's usual style of vacationing. So while his mother understood the desire for a vacation, she was a little surprised that what he picked was partying in Bulgaria, when he was more the type to choose active adventures like going diving or hiking, not lying on the beach all day and then going out to drink all night. But his friends said that it's not like he was opposed to the sort of thing. He liked to go out to the bar with them. He liked to hang out. It's not like he lived like a monk back at home. The guys he was going with were friends that he had known for nearly 10 years. They had all met in trade school. Though only two of the friends' names pop up here and there in the media, there were actually five other guys who went on this trip with Lars. On June 30th, 2014, the six of them took a train to Hamburg and then got on a flight to Varna. They had booked a four-star, all-inclusive resort for a full week. Lars's friends said the vacation went perfectly. They played soccer on the beach, they went swimming, they went to the clubs at night, and just generally enjoyed a week of no responsibilities. They said the only odd thing they could think of, looking back, was that Lars didn't eat very much. He would often skip breakfast, and even after skipping breakfast, he would eat a light lunch. Almost every report says the same thing, super salad. He would just not be eating very much. And since all of their food was included in the price of the resort, the other guys were doing A lot of eating, more than they usually would. So to see someone eat less than normal stood out. That said, it was hot during the day, especially compared to where Lars was coming from in the north of Germany. So it's possible the heat is what suppressed his appetite. There was a man who sold fresh fruit on the beach, and Lars had bought from him a few times, so we do know he was eating something. So like I said, the vacation was going perfectly well. It went off without a hitch until towards the end. On Saturday, July 5th, the guys all went to a beachside bar to watch a World Cup quarterfinal match between the Netherlands and Costa Rica. The bar had been decorated With flags from the various countries playing in the World Cup that year. Lars was the type of drinker who got funny and maybe a little goofy when he had been drinking. So, in a joking manner, he started switching around some of the flags at the bar. It seemed to annoy some of the patrons, but it also didn't seem like that big of a deal. What was a bigger deal, apparently, was that Lars was wearing a green. Werder Bremen jersey. Werder Bremen was his favorite football, or as I would say, soccer team. So Lars's jersey plus his jovial behavior seemed to rub some other German tourists the wrong way. They were Bayern Munich fans, which is a rival team. And can I just say, that I don't understand a lot of things about sports, but I really don't understand why in English the team is called Bayern Munich. In German, it's Bayern München, which translated would be Bavaria Munich. So we are not translating Bavaria, but we are translating Munich, and we're ending up with a half-German, half-English name. So someone email me, post on social media something, and explain why this team is called this weird language combination in English. I don't understand it, and I would like to. So, back on topic. Bayern München and Werder Bremen are both top-tier professional football teams in Germany, again, making them rivals. Nicole assures me that diehard German soccer fans will be passionate enough about their favorite teams to get into arguments over them, even while relaxing on vacation, and that's exactly what happened. This was also, like I said, during World Cup quarterfinals, so soccer was on everyone's minds, the stakes were high, maybe tensions were running high. Add in drinking, and an argument broke out. Lars's friends, Tim and Paul, have said that there were a few times they ran into people cheering on opposing teams during the time they were in Varna. And there would be a little back and forth, but things would calm down quickly. That's more or less what happened this night, and the argument ended with words and not blows. After the guys left the bar in the wee morning hours, a few of them wanted to go to McDonald's to get some food. The McDonald's at Golden Sands aren't eat-in restaurants. They are walk-up. They look like old-fashioned hamburger stands. So a few of Lars's friends went up to order, and Lars, he really wasn't one for fast food anyway, and he wasn't hungry, so he didn't plan to order anything. While his friends had their backs turned, placing their orders, Lars wandered off. His friends, assuming he decided to just walk back to the hotel, they also headed back to the hotel. But when they got there, Lars was not there. They weren't immediately alarmed and they actually fell asleep. They woke up when Lars did get back and he told his friends this whole story about how he had been walking and he was assaulted by four guys in that 10 to 12 minute walk from the McDonald's to the hotel. He said they were Russian or Bulgarian-speaking, which, both of them being Slavic languages, he may not have been able to tell them apart. He said that one guy took a swing at him and made contact with his left ear, and he said his ear still hurt. Now, Lars said he thought the attack on him was linked to his argument with the other football fans back at the bar that those guys had paid these other guys to rough him up. He even said that he heard them say something in the bar that made him think that's what they planned. Lars didn't have any signs of being in a fight that his friends could see. He wasn't scraped up. There were no bruises. In some places, it seems to be reported that they didn't believe him But in others, it was more that they were incredulous over the situation because they just couldn't believe that Lars, this really funny, friendly, easygoing guy, got into a fight. Not that they doubted him. But since he didn't seem to have any injuries, they also didn't think it was that big of a deal. It's also possible what they meant by not believing it is that they didn't agree with him that it was these other soccer fans. Those tend to be heat-of-the-moment fights, not something planned like this. But like I said, since he seemed physically fine, except his ear kind of hurt, they moved on. Lars did mention it to his girlfriend on the phone that day that his ear hurt, and also that he was not hearing as well out of it as he had been before, and she suggested that he go have it checked out. But assuming there would not be a doctor's office open on a Sunday, He decided to wait and see if it felt better on its own. He and his friends had one more day in Varna, and they were just going to spend it soaking up that last day of vacation. On Monday, July 7th, the day the group was flying back to Germany, Lars woke up to his ear being worse. He was worried now that there had been some serious damage done, which would have been a big issue for him. Having good hearing was enough of a requirement at his job that they tested him for it periodically. He wasn't sure what was going on or if it would be a good idea to fly home with an ear issue. So before the flights, Lars went to the doctor and he was accompanied by one of his friends. The doctor diagnosed Lars with a perforated eardrum, which is basically just a tear or a hole in the eardrum. This can happen with a blow to the ear. Boxers do occasionally deal with it. The doctor told Lars that he couldn't fly home. He was worried the change in the pressure would be too painful or possibly make the tear larger. This is not a universal medical opinion for what it's worth. A lot of people find that flying with a perforated eardrum is actually less painful because the air can move through the hole. And balance the pressure so you're not getting airplane ear. I looked on a lot of major medical websites and they pretty much all said it was fine to fly with the perforation. The doctor may have realized his limited experience being that he was a GP, so he did refer Lars to an ENT at the local hospital. Lars would be able to see the specialist that same day, but he would not be there and back in time to catch his flight even if the ENT okayed it lars's friends said they offered to have one or two of them skip the flight and stay behind with him either they would all get a flight for the next day if lars was cleared or they could get bus tickets in case he wasn't the bus would take 2 days to travel on so no one was really thrilled with that solution and they mostly just hoped that he would be cleared to fly. Lars assured his friends that he would be fine by himself and that they should go back to Germany on their scheduled flights. They all assumed Lars would be admitted into the hospital anyway for the night, so it would be fine. He also had traveler's insurance that would arrange a way for him to get home since he was stranded due to a medical condition. Assuming that Lars both had a place to stay that night and the means to get home later, they all left. The decision to leave Lars alone in Varna would prove to be a controversial one. It's definitely been judged and criticized online, but it's also been defended. Lars was, as many people point out, 28 years old. He's not 18, he's not 19. He was a full-grown adult. Lars seemed fine when his friends left. He was not acting strangely. He was not acting like he was very sick. And if he said it was okay and they should go home, it didn't seem like such a big deal at the time. Even though I can't imagine a scenario where me or my friends would make this decision, I guess I can see how it was made and I try not to judge too harshly. All right, so his friends are at the airport. They are flying back to Germany, and it was around 8 p.m. that night that Lars took a cab to the hospital to see the ENT. The ENT confirmed the diagnosis the GP gave and recommended Lars have surgery to repair the perforation. Not all eardrum tears need surgical intervention, but sometimes they do. But Lars didn't want the surgery done there. He wanted to wait to have it done at home, which is fair. After getting eardrum surgery, you generally cannot fly right away since you risk re-rupturing it. So the surgery done in Bulgaria would mean he would either have to stay longer or take the bus home. Plus, who wouldn't prefer to have surgery back home where your loved ones can be around and help you versus having it by yourself in a foreign country? It wasn't emergency surgery, so it made sense to go home first and have it done there. So the doctor did prescribe Lars cefzil, which is a brand name for cefprozil, which is a broad spectrum antibiotic. While there were no signs of infection in his ear yet, knowing Lars was going to wait on surgery, he gave it to him prophylactically. With refusing the surgery, Lars was not admitted into the hospital like his friends had assumed, and now he had nowhere to stay. His friends later expressed that they definitely would have had someone stay behind with him if they knew he would not be admitted into the hospital. But they didn't stay, and Lars left the hospital alone around 9.40 that night, again by taxi. He went to have the prescription for the antibiotic filled, and then he had to find somewhere to stay. This was the busy season in Varna, so it wasn't that easy to find a place to stay at 10 at night without a reservation. Lars told the driver that he wanted to find somewhere inexpensive to stay, and the driver took him to the Hotel Color or Calor, which is just 10 minutes from the Varna airport. There is a lot of talk about why this particular hotel. It's an older one. It's in a more rundown area than he had been in before, and the neighborhood was not nearly as safe as the resort. But being close to the airport and being cheap seemed to be the requirements Lars was looking for. This really is the sort of place you'd expect if you told a local taxi driver to take you somewhere cheap, and most of the other places were full. There is also some speculation that the driver may have had some type of deal with the hotel where he got a kickback or an incentive for directing tourists their way, but that's just speculation. When Lars checked into the hotel around 10:20 p.m. he was going to go to the store across the street to get something to take his medicine with but there were some men hanging around out front and they made him nervous so he just bought water at the hotel bar we know what happened that night and what Lars was thinking because he called his mother Sandra a few times in the overnight hours. It's important to know that he did not have his normal cell phone with him in Bulgaria. He left that behind, and he just brought an old cell phone with him, one he wouldn't care if it got lost or got stolen. This phone didn't really hold a charge well, so what it sounds like to me is that the calls would cut off, and he'd call back when it charged, or Sandra would call him back. It also sounds like it was a prepaid phone because at one point Lars asked Sandra to put more credit on it. Of course, she did, wanting to keep in touch with him while he was stuck in Varna alone and not feeling 100%. The calls between Lars and his mom started around 11 p.m. The reporting of time in this case varies by about an hour due to the time difference between Sandra and Lars. Most reporting doesn't tell you which time zone they're talking about. So in no particular order, here are some of the things that he told Sandra over the course of these few phone calls. He said that the specialist at the hospital was rude to him, and that left him a little confused. Lars also had complaints about his credit card. A lot of sources are saying that his credit card didn't work, but it sounds like he was actually afraid the clerk at the hotel had made a copy of his credit card when he checked in. Either way, he wanted Sandra to call and put a lock on his credit card because of this. Lars assured Sandra that he had enough cash and he would release the lock when he got back home. Lars also asked Sandra to call his travel insurance company to figure out his transportation back to Germany. And he was having Sandra make all these calls again because this phone's prepaid and the battery didn't hold a charge well, so he really couldn't afford to sit on hold. It's late at night, and Sandra is up. She's worried about Lars. She's trying to make these phone calls for him, and she decides she's just going to book him a bus ticket home so that he could leave the next day, regardless of what's going on with his ear. There wouldn't be any additional delays. And she told him he just needed to get a good night's sleep, and they would sort everything the next day. Shortly after this call, Lars called back and told Sandra something was wrong at the hotel, and he ended the call by saying, I have to get out of here. Lars did not give further details about what was wrong, but this hotel was cheap. It had thin walls. Local rumors are that it was somewhere where drugs were sold, so it is possible that Lars heard something from an adjoining room that alarmed him. He also indicated to Sandra at some point that he felt like he was being watched, so maybe he thought people were listening to him. And while that may sound unduly paranoid, the last time he was alone in Varna for 15 minutes, he got hit in the head hard enough to perforate his eardrum. Now he's in an even rougher part of town in this hotel with paper-thin walls A clerk, he thinks, stole his credit card information. It's very late. He hasn't slept. He doesn't know how he's getting home. I mean, he's on heightened alert. So it almost makes sense that he's a little bit paranoid. It would actually be more alarming if he was just totally calm and chill about everything. And if this is where that ended, fine. He just had a bad night. But that's not where it ended. After telling his mom on the phone that he had to get out of there, that's exactly what he did. He left the hotel. According to the security footage from the hotel, which has not been released, Lars was seen pacing the foyer and looking out the window. At some point, he appeared to hide in the elevator. Depending on the source, it was either at 1, 2, or possibly 3 a.m. that he left the hotel. He was gone for about an hour before he returned and went directly to his room. While we don't know where he went, Lars did call his mother in the time he was out of the hotel, and he told her that four men were following him. He was hiding somewhere up high, possibly on a hill, because he feared for his life. He was fearful enough that he was whispering as he was talking to her, and when the call disconnected, she didn't call him back. Sandra was convinced Lars was in danger, and she didn't want his ringing cell phone to alert anyone. The next Sandra heard from Lars came in the form of two text messages, basically saying the same thing. He was asking what Cefzil 500 was, which she looked up, and that was the antibiotic he had been prescribed. At this point, it is nearing dawn. Sandra has been up all night. She is beside herself, and she booked him a flight at 4.20 from Varna to Hamburg. She basically told him, get to the airport, and she would send him his ticket info. I mean, she is eager to get him home. She has a bus ticket and a plane ticket. He was going to take one or the other. So Lars's actions do sound like an escalating paranoia. He was scared in the hotel. He leaves the hotel. He thinks he's being followed. He's hiding out. And the family and a private investigator they hired do believe Lars was being followed after he left the hotel. That was not paranoia but they do not believe this was a targeted attack, but more like he was a tourist walking around in the dark in a seedy neighborhood. They probably intended to mug him. But Lars had made it back to the hotel safely. He got his things, and around 5 a.m., he was standing on the side of the road, waving frantically at a taxi. The cab already had a passenger, but she agreed to have the driver pick up Lars as well. It may have helped that she was a social worker, she was a compassionate person, and could see that Lars was anxious as he was flagging this taxi down. When Lars got into the cab, both the driver and the passenger noticed that Lars's pupils were widely dilated. This is not unusual for someone who is agitated or in a fight-or-flight state, which may have been where Lars was. It is also a symptom of a concussion, and we know Lars had a head injury just 48 hours earlier, though I would hope the two doctors who evaluated him had already checked for a concussion, but symptoms can sometimes be delayed. Additionally, there are certain drugs and stimulants, both legal and not, that can cause the widened pupils. While I wouldn't imagine an antibiotic that he took one, two, maybe three doses of would be a factor, we don't know if he took anything else. Anti-nausea medications can cause dilated pupils. If he had a blow to the ear that ruptured his eardrum, He may have felt dizzy and that led to nausea and he took anti-nausea medication that we just don't know about. Even though the family does not believe illicit drug use was part of Lars's life, we do have to keep that possibility open. My only question is when. After his friends left, Lars went from the hospital to the pharmacy, to the hotel And that's when he started calling his mother, and it sounded like his paranoia had started. So when and why would he decide this is a good time to take a recreational stimulant, getting to the hotel, and trying to figure out how he's getting home? As far as we know, Lars was not a habitual drug user. While paranoid behavior, dilated pupils, all of this does fit with drug use, The other behaviors around that day and night do not. So I personally do not think that was what was going on here, but we've established on the show before that you and I don't always have to agree. Regardless, the taxi dropped Lars off at the airport, and he called his mother. He expressed relief at being at the airport, even though his flight wasn't for several hours. At least he wasn't in a shady hotel or on the streets. Lars's mom suggested that he go see the airport doctor before flying home to evaluate his ear and just make sure it was safe to fly. She assumed it would be okay because if this ear injury was such a huge emergency, the ENT at the hospital would have admitted him or would have told him he couldn't go home for the recommended surgery, but they had released him. Still, Sandra thought it was worth having it looked at. Some places say that the airline forced Lars to get cleared by the airport doctor, but that does not make a lot of sense. Again, this is insight from Nicole. She said that a lot of airports in Europe will have a small doctor's clinic inside the airport for people who either need assistance on arrival Or during a layover. LAX and O'Hare are two US airports that also have urgent cares on site for the same purpose, but it's an independent doctor who works in that clinic. This is not an airline employed doctor, and the airlines don't require people to be cleared by their specific doctor prior to travel how would the airline even know that Lars had this injury? So Lars agreed with his mom that he would go get it checked out, and he also asked her to send him some cash through Western Union. Neither of them had ever used this service before, so Lars told her that a Bavarian man had explained it to him so that he could turn around and tell Sandra how to do it. She said she would send the money and gave him all of his flight and bus info. She emphasized that he needed to write it down just in case his phone died. So this stood out to me. I need cash wired and some random dude told me how to do it. Lars had just told Sandra the night before that he had plenty of cash so she could lock his credit card. Less than 12 hours later, suddenly a strange man is telling him how to have money wired to him, and frankly, it sounds like some sort of scam or a ransom or a robbery. But an interesting detail here is that Lars never told his mother how much money to send, just send some money. And how much to send is usually a pretty important detail when we're talking about a robbery or a ransom. Sandra decided on her own to send 500 euros, which is around 600 in US dollars. So plenty of money for whatever Lars needed it for. Lars also told his mom over the phone that they weren't letting him fly or take the bus. He didn't get into any more detail than that. We don't know who the they is. At this point, Lars had not gone to the doctor in the airport yet. It's not even clear if he even approached a ticket counter, so we don't know who is telling him he cannot fly. We certainly don't know who's telling him he cannot take the bus. He had a ticket that was paid for for the plane and the bus, and he had a valid passport. Those are the main requirements to get on either the plane or the bus, so it's not clear what other barrier he felt was there. Sandra, of course, wishes she asked why he couldn't get on the bus. That didn't make any sense. But with his battery not keeping a charge and wanting to make sure that she could call him back later with the Western Union details, she decided not to press it. Lars also mentioned on the phone that he was dirty from being outside hiding from those people the night before, and Sandra suggested he clean up in the bathroom. After Sandra got the Western Union transfer to go through, she called Lars back to let him know. When the phone picked up, she heard some water splashing, like in a bathroom, so she assumed he was washing up and had inadvertently answered the phone when he didn't mean to. This would be the last call between them. What we have next is the airport security cameras. On the footage, you can see Lars calmly wandering around the airport with his backpack and his carry-all. The video is on YouTube, and you can see that he does not look frantic, worried, anxious, or anything else. He is carrying his carry-all in one hand and what appears to be a cell phone in the other. At one point, he has a brief conversation with what looks like an airport employee. She pointed in the direction of the airport doctor, and Lars walked in that direction. It was around 9 a.m., and Lars had been in the airport for over three hours at that point. There are no cameras in the doctor's office, of course, so we have the doctor's account for what happened next. Dr. Kostov is the man who saw Lars. He said that Lars seemed anxious and restless when he came into the office. He was rubbing his hands together and fidgeting while he waited. We know he took Lars's temperature and he didn't have a fever, so we have to assume he did the rest of the vital signs, and if anything stood out, it's not been reported. Dr. Kostoff did try to prescribe Lars some pain medication for his ear pain, but he said that Lars acted like he didn't really trust the doctor and he would not take the medication. He left the physical pills on the table. Dr. Kostov told Lars he could go ahead and fly home, but he needed to sign a waiver that would release the doctor from liability, which Lars readily signed. Now, at this point, we do have a spot where the stories divide a bit. According to the family's investigation, Lars continued to act nervous. He said he needed to use the bathroom, and that's when he took off running out the door. They say that the clinic's documentation from that day supports this sequence of events. But the version of events Dr. Kostov gave is likely the one you're more familiar with if you've heard the story before. In this account, while Lars was in the clinic, another man opened the office door where Lars was in with the doctor. The person was a uniformed airport employee. Though he was a construction worker, the uniform could be interpreted as similar to security. When Lars saw the man, he was surprised, he panicked, and he started mumbling something about how he didn't want to die and he was in fear for his life. The doctor tried to calm him down, explaining that the man was just an employee But that's when Lars took off running, leaving both of his bags behind, and that included his passport, his wallet, and his cell phone. I have not seen an explanation for why a construction worker walked into a closed exam room. He was working on renovations in the airport, so maybe he wasn't aware the room was in use. But the family doesn't believe this version of events happened anyway, so why the man went into a closed exam room doesn't matter because it never happened. They have said that a German investigator who was in Varna was introduced to the airport employee who was supposedly the one who went into the doctor's office, but an investigation showed the man had not been to work that day. He wasn't even in the area on the day Lars disappeared. So the person offered up to the investigators as a witness hadn't been there, according to the family. So why Lars bolted from the doctor's office may be a huge question mark. What isn't in question is the fact that he bolted full tilt and ran out of the airport. That much was captured on CCTV. The door to the doctor's office itself isn't a blind spot but that is the direction Lars is seen running from. He sprinted from the office to the door and right out of the airport. He slowed to a walk as he made his way across the parking lot, but then he started running or at least jogging again when he hit a grassy area on the edge. He went past the reach of the cameras, but witnesses say they saw him climb the fence. This fence is two to two and a half meters high, which we're talking six to eight feet, and there was some security wire on the top, like barbed wire. Since Lars was so athletic, he was able to scale the fence and then clear the top. On the other side of the fence was a field with six-foot-tall sunflowers. So Lars was out of sight of these witnesses pretty quickly. After crossing the field of sunflowers, Lars would have ended up on a main highway. One direction would take him back to the main part of Varna, and the other would be the road out of Bulgaria if his plan was to hitchhike home. Meanwhile, as all this is happening, Sandra is completely unaware, and she is worried about Lars because she was trying to call him and he wasn't picking up so she started calling around trying to get someone to help Lars at the airport. But there was some kind of communication barrier where no one could really understand what she was asking for and or they didn't really care to understand. Either way, at 11 a.m., Sandra figured her best option was to call the German consulate in Varna, but it seems like they too were limited in what they could do. That day, Lars did not get on the plane, he did not get on the bus, he did not show up at home, and he didn't contact his family. So the next day, Sandra went up another step and reported him missing to the German embassy in Bulgaria, which has a bit more authority than the consulate. This is when the police in Bulgaria began looking for Lars. As it so happened a coworker of Lars's was on vacation in bulgaria visiting his in-laws when word got to him that lars was missing he went to varna to offer to help he was probably the only person in bulgaria at that point who actually knew lars he was told he wouldn't be needed and he felt that the police were rude to him in the way they brushed him off one Other thing that's been reported inconsistently is what the police did with their investigation. It does appear they searched the immediate area around the airport and used scent tracking dogs. The dogs tracked out to the highway before they lost the trail. And this has come up recently in a case I covered on my live stream several weeks ago. I had realized that for my decades of true crime consumption, I had heard again and again and again that someone was tracked by dogs to a road and then the scent dissipated. The assumption is always made that the person must have gotten into a car. So I did a little extra reading on scent dogs, conditions, and streets. I learned that it is common for this to happen because roads are terrible for preserving ascent. Passing cars cause air movement and pollution, but even without cars going by, roads are usually open. They are exposed to direct sunlight, which can dry out and destroy ascent. In this case, where Lars may have crossed a multi-lane highway, It's entirely possible that he made it across the highway and the dogs just couldn't pick up the scent on the other side after the initial trail was broken. Tracking dogs are amazing, but they aren't machines. They can't always find what they're sniffing for. The searches were one way the Bulgarian police were investigating, and they were also appealing to the public for information. Unfortunately, the areas where Lars could most inconspicuously hide out around the airport tended to be poorer areas without as much access to the media. And that's why it was important for flyers to get posted. Lars's employer and family had retained a private investigator to do his own investigation, and that included the search for witnesses and the passing out of flyers. They also retained a Bulgarian attorney who would keep them informed and possibly even act as a liaison with the local police. Two weeks passed without word from Lars and no sign of him. This is when Sandra flew to Varna to look for him herself. She had tried to trust the process, trust the investigators, especially since her husband needed care at home. She couldn't drop everything to go to Bulgaria, but thanks to the help of others, she was able to go while Lars's father was cared for at home. In Varna, Sandra went to hospitals and psychiatric wards herself to look for Lars to see if he'd been admitted. She also met with the attorney and the investigators. They showed her some of the CCTV footage from the airport of Lars. Her initial view of Lars running away was that it looked deliberate. He didn't look behind him at all. He didn't double back. He looked like he was running with a plan. And while that is mostly true, Sandra hadn't been shown the whole video. And when you look at the total of what's been released up to now, it does, in my mind, show a more hectic Lars. It is true, though, that he did not look back, which makes you think he wasn't running from someone so much as running towards something. He didn't seem worried if someone had followed him out of the airport. In fact, he slowed down once he was out of the airport. Not all of the CCTV footage has been released. Lars was in the airport for hours. 40 minutes of it, we know he was in the doctor's office and off-camera, but that still leaves two-plus hours of Lars roaming the airport. The footage released is less than a minute long, and it's stitched together from multiple cameras at different times. It's possible there is something else on the video footage that is of evidentiary value and is purposely being withheld. It's also possible it's completely irrelevant, and they were only releasing the important parts. I think the footage would at least clear up if a construction worker walked into the doctor's office or not, and maybe it does. It just was not included in what has been made public. In addition to seeing this edited video, putting up some more flyers, and looking for Lars, Sandra was also able to go through the things he left behind in his luggage. The police had already searched the bags when Sandra got them. So when she looks in the bags, she has an inventory list of the contents. She also has a good idea what should be in the bags. The antibiotic that Lars had been prescribed was not in the bag. She went back to the airport with her Bulgarian attorney to see what was going on, and she said the employees snapped at her and they got loud with her when she was trying to figure out if they knew why something was missing from the bag. It turned out that the police had confiscated the medication, which makes sense, but it seemed odd that the people at the airport would be so short with Sandra about it and that the police wouldn't have told her that they took something. I think the implication here is that what if those pills had been mislabeled or they weren't what Lars thought they were? That might explain Lars's erratic behavior shortly after he filled that prescription. Because remember, everything was fine until he got that medication prescribed. I think getting the wrong medication is not likely what happened here. Cefzil comes in a blister pack. It's prepackaged. It's not a Bottle of loose pills. My guess is the Bulgarian police probably tested the pills anyway, and when they turned out to be the antibiotic, they just didn't publicly release that information. Figuring out what was going on with the luggage and the pills would be one of the last things the Bulgarian attorney helped the family with because Sandra soon fired him after he told her that she should stop her own investigation into looking for Lars. So as it stands in 2020, as of the recording of this episode, the video of Lars running towards the fence on July 8th, 2014, is the last confirmed sighting of the 28-year-old. He never touched the Western Union money his mother sent, the plane and bus tickets went unused, and he never contacted anyone again. Even though he had been in regular contact with his mother from around 11 p.m. until he went into that doctor's office. Sandra believes there is a good chance Lars is out there and he needs help, so she has not turned down any opportunities to do interviews or to get the case in the media, both in Bulgaria and Germany. A popular German Unsolved mystery style show has profiled the case, and tips have come in. A lot of the tips were about homeless people who resembled Lars, which would be the likely scenario if he was alive. Without money or access to identification, if Lars is alive, he's likely been living rough. But none of these sightings were ever him. There were at least two truck drivers who believed they picked Lars up as a hitchhiker, but these sightings are unconfirmed. The most promising lead was in November 2016 when a man was picked up along a Brazilian highway with no identification and he seemed unable to tell anyone who he was. Eventually, an officer tried to speak English to him and the man was able to reply. When his picture was put up on social media, a lot of people called in the tip that this was Lars Matank, And I can see why they thought that. I even showed the picture of the man and Lars to my husband, who happens to also be named Lars, and he thought they looked alike. Except this man had naturally blonde hair and blue eyes. Lars' natural hair color is darker, a darker blonde. The photos we so often see of Lars Matank are with his hair lightened or bleached. And Lars also had brown eyes the blood type of the living John Doe also didn't match. The man turned out to be Anton Pilipa, a Canadian man who had gone missing in 2012. Anton had mental health issues, and large chunks of the five years he was missing are hard for him to remember. There is no paper trail of how he got to Brazil from Toronto except that he remembers walking and taking rides when he could get them. I'll admit, it's nearly impossible for me to believe that someone crossed that many country borders from Canada to Brazil without his passport and never once having an issue at a checkpoint. But unless someone can dig up evidence to disprove this, it appears that's exactly what he did, the family flew him back to Toronto and helped him rebuild his life and get treatment for his mental illness. While Anton being recovered didn't bring the Matank family the ending they hoped for, it did renew their overall hope that Lars would be found alive. Anton was missing for two years longer than Lars was at the time. And Lars's family and friends fully believe that he is strong enough to withstand whatever he's gone through, even if he's been living on the streets and off the grid. Aside from just the video being available, which always gets public interest in a case, I think this one stands out because Lars's behavior right before he took off just seems so out of character for him, And there's a big question of not just where is he, but why? Why did he run? Why was he showing these signs of erratic and paranoid behavior? And it's not hard to notice that the timing of that erratic behavior starting was right after Lars took that medication. And it seems Lars may have thought there was some connection as well because he texted his mom twice to ask her to look up the medication he may have been trying to figure out what was going on himself. A representative of the Bulgarian Pharmacists Association has said that this erratic behavior could be a very, very rare side effect of the antibiotic. If Lars had consumed alcohol or other drugs, it could have exacerbated this side effect. Lars had gone down to the bar to get water to take the medication. Did he also get a drink while he was down there just to unwind after this very chaotic day? According to rxlist.com, nervous system and mood issues like this, like confusion and insomnia, were reported at less than 1% in clinical trials with this particular antibiotic. There are other studies that have shown hallucinating and psychosis have been experienced, though in extremely rare cases. In all of these cases where this was experienced, in every single one, the side effects reversed when the medication was stopped. It was not a permanent change. It was not a permanent situation. And it wouldn't explain Lars staying gone for six years. And that's an issue with a lot of the theories. They may explain the why, but they don't necessarily explain what happened next. For instance, one theory that's floated around is that Lars and his friends did do drugs recreationally over the week they were in Varna, and when they left and Lars suddenly stopped using whatever substances these were, he came down off of them hard and had these behavioral changes. But then what happened next? Another theory is that Lars was being used as a drug mule and he had swallowed something that broke. But again, what happened next? He was in a populated area that I imagine was searched thoroughly, and from all accounts it was. So if he had this erratic behavior and he ran off and he died, why hasn't he been found? Being involved in something illegal or thinking he was wrapped up in something illegal may explain why he took off when, according to the doctor, someone in a uniform came in the room. But it doesn't explain him calling his mom and narrating all the happenings to her. Lars's mother, Sandra, has put forth a theory that Lars felt threatened, he ran for his life, and then the stress of the situation may have triggered amnesia. I'm not sure how this would really fit in the timeline because he was acting paranoid and erratic without experiencing symptoms of retrograde amnesia. He knew who he was. He knew his mom's phone number. He knew why he was at the airport. He knew everything about his injury when he met with the doctor. So the amnesia would have had to have triggered after he ran off and we don't know what would have happened to cause that. Not long after Lars's disappearance, the German state department did issue a warning for the Golden Sands area related to doctors there. They said there have been isolated cases of local doctors who misdiagnosed tourists they would then recommend expensive and unnecessary treatments some tourists reported that when they turned down the treatment like Lars did or they weren't prepared to pay the very expensive bill immediately they would be told that they couldn't go home and they were threatened to have their passports taken in this case we do have Lars's diagnosis confirmed by Three doctors. One told him he couldn't fly. The other recommended surgery, but still let him leave when he said he didn't want it. And the third approved him to fly, but had him sign a waiver, saying that he wouldn't sue if something happened. So it doesn't really sound like a situation of a misdiagnosis. Lars did say he was told he couldn't leave by plane or bus, but he said that before he saw the doctor at the airport and it's still a mystery who was telling him he couldn't go home it doesn't sound like it was linked to this scam so we would be here all day if we went through all of the internet theories on what happened so i'm just going to cover the ones that come up a lot one is that lars's behavior was caused by rapid onset of severe mental illness or the effects of head trauma neither of these follow what we know about the onset of mental illness or even mild head trauma. So it would be a very rare instance indeed if it was either one of those. In other theories that drugs were involved in either he took them, he was supposed to traffic them, possibly his friends trafficked them and he stayed behind for some reason. In this case, the ruptured eardrum really doesn't play a pivotal role in what happened. And then there are some general theories that Lars's paranoia was based in reality, that he was the victim of an attempted human trafficking situation, an organ harvesting situation, or maybe even a ransom kidnapping scenario. He managed to get away to the airport, but when that construction worker came in the doctor's office, remember, this is a private exam room. When he came in, Lars thought he was there as part of whatever people were trying to do to victimize him, and that's why he took off. Those are really the big ones out there. I'm not running through them quickly to dismiss them, but because there isn't a whole lot to say about them that isn't even more speculation. I do think this behavior change is one of the reasons people are interested in discussing this case. And of course, if people are interested in discussing it, It keeps it in the media, and it might get us to the question that Lars's friends and family want answered, not the why. They can figure out the why later. The family wants to know where. Where is he? They believe that he is still alive, possibly with amnesia, much like Anton Pilipa, and he will show up somewhere. Others believe he may have ended up wandering, confused, He was in a crime-ridden area near the airport and something happened to him there. That is a possibility in the sense that there are rough neighborhoods and villages near the airport, but Nicole notes in the research that they wouldn't have bothered hiding his body. There is an organized crime element in Varna, but they rely so heavily on tourism and the tourism industry that they tend to leave tourists alone. The last thing they want to do is drive people away from visiting the area. And still others believe that he did run off. Maybe he went into one of the many forested areas outside of Varna and he succumbed to the elements. But if he was alive today, Lars would be 34 years old. He is 180 centimeters tall, which corresponds to 5'11". At the time of his disappearance, he had an athletic build and dark blonde hair and brown eyes. If he has been living in a homeless encampment or has been living a transient life, he very likely has grown in his beard. When his beard grows in, it does have a reddish tint to it. If you have any information, you can submit it to the Find Lars Matank Facebook page. It is run by his family. I will leave a link in the show notes for it. They have worldwide support for this case, and in whatever language you can communicate with them, they will be able to get your message.
1: Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I have a passion for all things crime and psychology and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling, so I love research and I like to do deep dives into cases. I recently did a three-part series on the disappearance of Madeline McCann. I promise you, this is coverage that you haven't heard anywhere else. I also do cases that are lesser known, such as the case of Keith Warren, who in 1986 was found hanging from a tree in Silver Spring, Maryland. His death was classified as a suicide, but things don't add up in the case. Keith was found wearing clothes that weren't his. The 911 caller said that someone had committed suicide in her boyfriend's basement. And when emergency services arrived, the body was in the woods and not in the basement. Keith's mother Mary would receive a manila envelope that would call the suicide conclusion by police into question. There were copies of police photos and a note that predicted the death of Keith's friend Mark Finley. Mark Finley calls Mary to unburden himself, but he would never get the chance. Before he gets a chance to meet up with Mary, he is killed in a freak accident, though some believe it was murder. 2020 is a strange year, and it is comforting to have a favorite podcast to keep you company. I would love to be that podcast. Subscribe to Riddle Me That True Crime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.